Guys, before the message, let me just emphasize a couple of those announcements again. Um, one of the reasons we prayed about having our own building for years was the ability to interact in a community, that we would be neighbors in a neighborhood, and we are that here. It'd be a perfect fit for many of us, I think, to simply be able to interact with some of the kids right across, basically, a block away from our church. So I do hope that you'll seriously consider that, pray about that. Uh, many of you here were involved, uh, perhaps some of you still are, in the Lunch Buddies. That was another 30-minute once a week program that many of us were invested in here in Topeka. But this is in our neighborhood. It's kids you can have an impact on. By the way, if service isn't costly, it's probably not very meaningful. So we want to prioritize our lives. And serving others in Christ's name should be right up there at the top. So if we said we give up some other element to serve kids once a week, that would be a good thing. Our service should be costly. So I hope you'll consider that. And to the home groups, we have not talked about participation in home groups in this church over the years as much as we would like to have, simply because we didn't have enough groups to promote. We've got two more starting, another Sunday night one. Thursday night one. We've got others existing on Wednesday nights, Sunday night already. We've got men's groups. I don't think it's in this morning's, but you'll have a bulletin insert coming up that shows all the ways you can plug in. <clears throat> and even in a church our small size, if this is all you have of a church family life, it's insufficient. And you're not getting what God wants you to get. And frankly, you're not giving what God wants you to give. So we're called into faith, into fellowship, and these mornings are good for something that we're doing like teaching or worshiping together. What they're not great about is fellowship. So if you don't intentionally plug into one of these smaller venues, you simply will not be able to receive the encouragement and the spiritual gifts from others that God wants you to benefit from. But you also won't have that venue in the body of Christ in which your gifts and your intentional service is there to encourage others. So... If you're not in one of the groups, I really, really, really ask you to pray about that and make room for that in your schedules. So, hey, and as we get started, this isn't the image, but I did want to thank Chad Barker specifically for the series image that will come up here in just a little bit. So one of the questions, uh, philosophical, theological questions that uh, comes up a lot uh, historically, but also in our time and there's a trio of questions. We're going to start with this one. Is this question, is God good? So atheism is, is a new development. You're, you're aware in history, there were no atheists. They didn't exist. The, the time and the age when people say, I don't believe in God, this is an anon it's a silly statement, frankly. There is a God. And we all know that, Romans 1 tells us. So throughout time, Christians and non-Christians alike have asked this question, is God good? I'm looking at my life. I'm looking at the world around me. And I'm wondering, I see some good things, but I see some less than good things. Is God good? And is He all good? Specifically, for Christians who believe the Bible, is God all good? Is God all good? The second question that follows this is inevitably this one. Is God powerful? And when we say, is God powerful, we're really asking, is God all-powerful? Is there anyone or anything that can upset God's apple cart? Is there any force in heaven or, or on earth that can upend God's will? So is God all good and is God all powerful? And that leads to the third question. If you tell me God is all good 
and you tell me God is all-powerful, which we affirm as Christians. Then the third question is this, it's then where does evil come from? If you tell me God is all-good and He's all-powerful, then evil should not be able to exist in the world. And it's a false conclusion because it's a false premise. And this is the thing. This equation assumes that there could be no reason adequate for a holy good God who is also all-powerful to allow evil in the world. That's the premise, and it's a false premise. And it's a false premise for this reason. Our all-good, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving, all-life-giving God allows evil in the world for His own glory. That's the reason that's adequate to say an all-good God who's also all-powerful can have a cosmos, can have a world in which evil is present. It's because His glory is the ultimate end of evil's presence in the world. Okay, If you don't buy that, just stick with me for a little bit. We're in our second message in the series Heroes and Villains. And last week we looked at the ultimate hero. That was King Jesus. This morning we're looking at sort of the antithesis of uh, Jesus, the ultimate villain. And I want to make sure that we don't get confused when I say this. So Jesus, the hero, is up here. His villain is down here. Okay, This isn't yin and yang. These aren't two equal opposing forces. Jesus, the ultimate hero, he does have a villain. You and I have an ultimate villain. But he's not on the same par. I just want to make sure that we've said that. Part of the challenge for us when we're thinking about Satan is that we give him too much or too little credit as a villain. He is the arch villain. He is Jesus' nemesis, if we can say that, or ours. We give him too much credit when we say, and I know Christians like this, and maybe you're one of them, or maybe you know them, maybe you live with them, Satan's behind everything. Every temptation I face is Satan. Every sin I commit is from Satan. Every bad thing that happens in the world is because of Satan. It's as if Satan is omnipotent and omniscient, and he's not. So we give him too much credit sometimes. We also give him too little, little credit, though, on the other hand, because when we fail to recognize that this world, Satan is, Jesus calls him the God of this world. He's overseen, he's ruling over the God of as this world as the God of this world. That means the culture you and I live in, the water we swim in, the air we breathe, is His realm. It's affected by Him. It's guided by Him. And most of us take far uh, too lightly the degree to which the world we live in is affected by Satan, and therefore he might be having an influence on my life in ways I'm not aware of. So we typically give him either too much or too little credit. But we are looking at this morning at the ultimate villain, Satan. Revelation 12, 19 connects a number of names. We know that we're talking about the same entity. Satan is the Old Testament word, uh, the adversary. Uh, he's called the devil in the New Testament, the accuser, the great serpent, the deceiver. So last week we saw Jesus is the ultimate hero, and not just God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, but in the incarnation, Jesus comes and he basically slays the dragon, right? The ultimate villain. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection, he puts to death, as it were, sin and death and Satan and all of that and rises victoriously from the grave and then shares that victory with us. That's why we can have hope in eternal life. It's what Jesus has accomplished. But we also said this, Jesus as the superhero 
would seem out of reach as a model or an example for us unless the example he left for us was something we could emulate. And we said last week that when you look in Hebrews, the thing that it holds up for us as the model to pattern our lives after so that we're maybe little superheroes like Jesus, it's simply faithfulness. Remember Hebrews 11 and then Hebrews 12 too. We're following Jesus who is the author and He's the perfecter of our faith. That you and I live as many heroes as it were, but we do that simply through faithfulness. We take in the truth of God's Word, we believe it, and then we act on it. It doesn't sit there stagnant, we act on it. That was last week. This morning we're looking at Jesus' great enemy, the villain that opposes you and I and that we need to be concerned with this morning. So I want to start again with this theme that Satan exists for God's glory. Theologically, this is really important. If you settle this in your mind, then you don't feel like your life and the lives of others are somehow careening out of control. If you know that Satan exists, in fact, for God's purposes and God's glory, it changes the way you see him and the interaction we have with him. So, a little bit of logic. Remember this, that um, uh, God is the only God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's no one else like Him. There can be no one else like Him. So any life, any entity, any personality that exists in the cosmos short of God is not God. They don't have God's powers. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. They're not omnipresent. So we say that anyone and anything in the universe short of God is somehow there by God's decree. That's true of Satan as well. So we want to make sure we start with the premise that Satan is here fulfilling God's holy purposes. Not because he's holy, but because God is God and Satan is not. Satan exists by God's will and power for God's purposes. Satan has no power God hasn't given him. When we talked about authority and submission in a series not long ago, we said every authority short of God is a delegated, a derived authority or power. And that's true of Satan as well. He has a delegated authority and power. Satan can go no further in pursuing death and destruction than God allows. God is sovereign over all things. Nothing in this universe can happen apart from God's permissive or direct allowance. It's an impossibility because God's all-powerful. Anything that happens, happens under His sovereign power. Now I want to qualify what I'm saying here for just a second. If you pause for a moment and you just mentally maybe go through a catalog, what has sin and death, the fruits of evil and Satan, what does some of that look like? And if you think of uh, concentration camps, if you think of abortion, if you think of abuse in the homes, you could think of any and numerous kinds of terrible, terrible things. And you say, God allows that? And you have to say, well, yes, He does. And the reason I bring this up is this. What that should do in our thinking is elevate the degree to which the glory of God is the theme that God's pursuing and that we should too. Do you know what I mean? The comparison. If God's willing to allow the kind of death and destruction that you and I know exists in the world, then His glory must, have be, must be of supreme importance. 
not only to God, but to us as well. So that's, God is ultimately using Satan for his own glory. And the power Satan has to sow the, the seeds of death and destruction are allowed by God, ultimately for God's glory. Satan's end has been decreed by God, and it will happen in God's good time. We'll look at that as we wind down. Now to talk about this, I'm pulling up a, a reference from Romans 9.17, which is in fact a quote from Exodus 9.16. This isn't specifically talking about Satan, but you, you'll see that it makes the point. <clears throat> in Exodus, when God sends Moses to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth, therefore the most powerful man on earth, he's doing the miracles that prove that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is more powerful than the gods of Egypt. And in the midst of that, Moses is supposed to go to Pharaoh and say this. The Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So think of this for just a second. Pharaoh's the most powerful man on earth. What's he been doing to the Jews, by the way? He's been killing their children. That sounds like abortion today, doesn't it? He's been enslaving them. He's been making their lives miserable. And God says, I've allowed that to my people. And you remember Israel was like a, an embryo planted in the womb of Egypt. Jacob's clan comes down, 70 plus people. But they grow over that 400 year period. And now they're a nation ready to be birthed. They're going to be expelled out of Egypt just the way a baby is born through the waters of the Red Sea, as it were. It's a pretty graphic image. God says He's behind all of that. And He says, I've raised Pharaoh up this wicked person who's been murdering My people. And I've allowed it. I've raised him up because I'm going to demonstrate that I'm more powerful than Pharaoh. I'm going to demonstrate that I'm more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. And that's why I've raised him up. And guys, what's true of Pharaoh is true of Satan. And remember, Satan was the spiritual force or power behind Pharaoh. I forget to say this in a little bit. One of the key lessons of the book of Daniel that we're not looking at this morning though is this. There are spiritual powers behind earthly rulers. There are demonic forces that oversee the rulers over nations and empires. And you see that clearly in the book of Daniel. So here's Pharaoh and God says, I've raised up this wicked leader because I'm going to use him to demonstrate my superior power. And what was true of Pharaoh is true of Satan in God's hand as well. In the Old Testament, Satan is called the adversary. In the New Testament, he's the accuser. So in contrast to that, today as Christians, we know Jesus' name means Savior. He's also called the advocate in 1 John 2. So, Satan is raised up so that Jesus can display his superiority over the God of this world and all his powers and all his destructive force and elements. That's why he's here. He's the villain to, by which Jesus shows forth his superiority. <clears throat> Satan's commitment to death allows Jesus' life-giving power to be seen more clearly. Satan's lies give greater contrast to Jesus' absolute truthfulness and Satan's self-aggrandizement or his pride is said against Jesus' self-giving for his bride. One more example of this, uh, thinking of uh, Exodus. 
You remember when God uh, appoints Moses as his man, Moses has a staff. And when you read the accounts of the miracles in Exodus, you'll see that Moses uses that staff to institute a miracle and God displays his glory. One of those initial miracles is that Moses comes into Pharaoh's presence and he throws the staff down on the ground and it becomes what? It becomes a serpent. And then he, when he's done, it's eating the other serpents. He picks it back up. In Moses' hand, the staff and the serpent are means of displaying God's superior power. And again, that's an image of Satan in God's hands. In God's hands, Satan becomes an instrument to display God's superior power and authority. So we want to make sure that we understand that we're not in a story in which the end is uncertain. And we're not in a world or a drama in which somehow we're confused about who's in charge or where this thing is going. God has raised up Satan to demonstrate his own perfections. The perfections of his justice, his mercy, his kindness. So when you and I think about this, we need to think as those who know Christ and understand that nothing is ultimately out of control to God in this world. And that includes all the elements of sin, and death and disaster that Satan's working around us. Now, he didn't start that way. Satan didn't start that way. God did not create Satan evil. We're not going to be able to determine this morning, by the way, when you say, how does an all-holy God, how does he create a world in which evil exists? You know, that's a conundrum. And all we can say sort of basically is that when God allows a choice, a choice on anything other than God is in itself deficient. It's sinful. It's, it's beneath what it should be. So we're not solving that riddle this morning, but we do know that when God created Satan, He created him a glorious creature. Now when He shows up in Genesis 3, the first time He shows up, His existence is just assumed. The text says in Genesis 3, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other field, uh, animals of the field, beasts of the field. It's like, okay, where did He come from? And what are we supposed to understand about him? That text doesn't actually tell us. We've got to go to a couple of the prophets before we are able to see something of what was true of Satan before his fall and then after his fall. Now, this is not a stretch. I'm going to use Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 to talk about Satan before his fall and then his fall and after his fall, at least briefly. I mentioned that Daniel says that there are spiritual forces or powers behind earthly rulers and kingdoms. But you see that in both Isaiah and Ezekiel as well. So when Isaiah is prophesying about the king of Babylon, he starts by talking about the physical person that was there in his day. But it's clear that at some point he speaks beyond or or to the entity, to the spiritual power behind the king of Babylon because he starts saying things that weren't true and couldn't be true of an earthly king. And this is in part what he says in Isaiah 14. These are verses 12-14. through 14. He says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. Some translations say son of the morning. Now listen to what... <laughs> you started glorious. You were this light creature. Ezekiel gets a little bit more specific, but so uh, you're like a star. You have this glory. He says in verse 13, though, you said in your heart, now this is Satan's desire, uh, I will, and notice the I will. I'm in charge. This is what I'm going to do. 
I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. My, my present glorious uh, position is not adequate. I am going to, by fiat, by my own supreme power, I'm going to make myself something God didn't make me. I'm going to elevate myself to be like God Himself. And remember, nothing and no one can be like God in that sense. But that's what Satan says. Now when you get into Ezekiel 28, you see basically the same theme with a little bit more information. There he says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. That's the earthly king that's being addressed. And then say to him, Thus says the Lord, You were, now speaking past him, You were the signet of perfection. You were full of wisdom. You were perfect in beauty. That was Satan in his original creation. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. You were an anointed guardian cherub. You, you were an angel of a special class or sort. You had this exalted position. I placed you, God says. This is important. I put you where you were. I made you what you were. I put you where you were. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fires. You walked. You were blameless in your days from the day you were created. Did God create Satan sinful and deficient? In other words, did God create wickedness and you have to say no he didn't because this says you were blameless and you were perfect from God's creation verse 15b though says this until unrighteousness was found in you and some way I'm assuming Satan like Adam and Eve were, were faced with some kind of choice in which we say God you're it we're good to go with you or we're not and Satan like Adam and Eve after him chose not God. And it says, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst. You sinned. Verse 17, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. <laughs> so this says his history is he was created perfectly. He's this covering anointing cherub. He was perfect in beauty. He had this, this regal, if you will, role in God's kingdom. And he essentially says, it's not enough. Do you know today that if you're not satisfied, if you're not content with what you are and where you are today, you never will be. Now think of this for just a second. Satan is the pinnacle of angels. Of the created realm, Satan's at the top of the heap. And what does he say, given a choice? He says it's not good enough. If you and I aren't content... And this is why I say that keyword, I placed you, I put you where I wanted you. I made you what I wanted you to be. When you and I revolt against who God has made us, how God has made us, where God has placed us, how God means to use us, you and I are following exactly the same pattern as Satan. We're simply saying what God has done is not enough. And it's sort of like this. I'm more important than that. I deserve more than this. God had a good start, but it's not good enough for me. I hope you walk away this morning with two keys. One is theologically, Satan is a rod in God's hand that God uses as he wills to display his glory. And the other one is this. 
when you and I entertain a bitter spirit, a resentment, an attitude that I deserve more, I'm made for better things or better people or better, better places or better times than God has set me, it's exactly the same thing Satan said. Exactly. If we don't choose contentment with where God put us, when God put us, how God put us, the ways in which He chooses to use us and not choose us, where He didn't put us, what He didn't give us, then you and I are doing exactly the same thing Satan did. Exactly the same attitude. When we choose to resent the time or the place God has placed us, the circumstances in which we were born or live, we're following the same impulse. Now for some of us, this looks like this. I resent my looks or my stature. My nose is too big or it's too small. I'm too short. I'm too tall. I'm too heavy. I'm too thin. I resent my income or my career. By the way, none of this means that we don't aspire to work hard, to be productive. If we can do things for the benefit of our family or our church, all of those things, we're not saying anything about that. The impulse is, I deserve more. I'm worth more. I'm more important than this current setting. I may resent what others have and I don't. Guys, on Sunday morning, I, lay, I may lament the spiritual gifts that others have and I don't. As Christians, there's a couple of references on your study sheet I'll let you look at later. I'll just mention them. 1 Corinthians 4 and 1 Corinthians 12. In both settings there, because Paul was writing to the Corinthian church very caught up in a kind of worldly pride, Paul says, whatever you have, God gave you. So don't be proud. If you have a great intellect or abilities or whatever it is, you can use those, you can develop those, but you didn't give those to yourself. You couldn't have. You received those, so don't be proud about them. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says for Christ that it's the Holy Spirit who gives us our spiritual gifts and sets us in the body of Christ exactly where He wants us. Those are not our calls. We're like Satan in that God has created us, He's placed us where He wants us. He's given us the gifts, the stature, the abilities, the callings He wants us to have. So Francis Schaeffer says at this, I love this because I think it sums it up well, to be wholly committed to God in the place where God wants Him, this is the creature glorified. That is, if you say to yourself, I want to, in a good way, be as glorious as I possibly can, Schaeffer says with the authority of Scripture, then be the person God's made you to be in the place and the time He's put you. Serve God faithfully in that role and that'll be your glory. And of course, not only is that true on the earth, but that faithfulness by which we emulate Christ, the greatest hero, the superhero, that faithfulness then God does reward in eternity. So we want to make sure when we feel that angst inside about I deserve more, I want more, it's all about me. we got to hear that voice for what it is. That is the same thing Satan said. That's the, the phrase or the thought upon which destruction came upon him and upon us. So, a little bit about Satan's history. What's, what's he up to today? Again, being careful there of the impulses we follow. What's Satan up to today? Well, he's lying. And he's deceiving. When Satan shows up in the very first thing in Genesis 3, he's lying. 
The joke, you know, when an, how do you know when an attorney's lying, his mouth is moving? That's true of Satan. I'm sorry, there's an attorney in the house. My for, I beg your pardon, there's two. Sorry, guys. It's not my joke. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, poor example. Um, yeah. When Satan's talking, he's lying. When Satan's speaking, he's deceiving. It's absolutely part and parcel of what he does. John 8.44, Jesus says this, He doesn't stand in the truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You know, there are guys who can pass polygraph tests because lying is as easy to them as breathing. They don't react physiologically to lying because it's part of who they are and what they do. That's true of Satan. He's always lying. It's not if he's lying. He's always lying and deceiving. 2 Timothy 4.1 says there's a coming time. Perhaps we're in that time today. It says some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Guys, when it says this falling away from the faith, doctrines, teachings of demons, I assume Paul's speaking within the church, within the professing church. That this isn't, this isn't stuff on uh, uh, public radio. This is stuff being propagated in churches. You know, we talked about this morning during announcements the importance of the Word of God. You guys know that's important to us. One of the things I really appreciate about Bill Bider is not only the commitment to the Scriptures, but it's always the Scripture as our authority. The Scriptures are authority. And this says basically that professing Christendom wrought largely is going to pay attention to deceiving teachings. And certainly a lot of that's already going on today, but it's going to get far worse. So what's he up to today? Well, he's lying and he's deceiving. The other thing he's doing today is he's tempting, of course, when he lies. In Genesis 3, it's for the sake of tempting our first parents, Adam and Eve, to not believe God, to choose against God, just as Satan had, with the thought that I can get something better. There's something better out there for me, and this is it. Satan is tempting. Now, I want to qualify that in this way. You and I, we don't need help to be tempted into sin. And that's why the reference to James 1.13 is on your study sheet. James doesn't bring up Satan in that context, in that equation, that you get a lustful impulse in your own heart, in our own fallen nature. And we, we coddle a little bit, and it gives birth to sin and death. Satan's not in James' equation. Every temptation you face is not from the enemy of your soul. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He tempts, but he's selective. You know that Satan's smart. He's very smart. And he's worked with people like you and me. He's much smarter than us. That's why our safety comes in living under the authority of God's Word. But he's worked with folks just like us. He's pretty good at tempting us. And that's what he's doing. And he'll tempt you and I in areas we think we're invulnerable to. We think we're good to go. Well, that's, that's where he'll find you. You've got to be very careful because he does tempt. Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You know, in that context, we're not pursuing the text here, but in the context, one thing he says, you're hungry, Jesus, that's a legitimate need. Turn the stones into bread. It sounded like it made sense. But it wasn't what God wanted of Jesus in the moment. You and I can be tempted to do good things, but at the wrong time or for the wrong reason. Temptation comes in any number 
of appearances. 2 Corinthians 11.3, this is not on your study sheet. As the serpent deceived Eve, your minds might be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And guys, let me ask you a question. If someone, if you identified your own life, would you say your life is identified by that it would be descriptively true of you to say, my life is filled up with a, a pure, simple devotion to Christ? Because if we don't, something's amiss. Because that's what we're supposed to have. What else is taking up that devotion, that emotion that God means us to have for Christ? And this is not to be a joy killer. God's given us so many good things in this world to enjoy. We're not saying we don't enjoy the good gifts God gives us. But does Christ have that singular, simple, undivided attention and devotion that Paul says we should have because the enemy is deceiving us so that we don't have that. And that's really life. You know, you could be an impoverished person in this world your life long, and out of simple purity and devotion to Christ, you'd have a great time, and then you'd see Him forever. So it's not the stuff that makes us happy. Do we have that singular devotion to Christ? Uh, you know, he gets double duty. So if Satan accuses you, excuse me, if he tempts you or me, and we give in. What does he do next? He accuses us, right? It's a two for one. So when we sin, the enemy that was faithful to tempt us is now faithful to accuse us of that sin. And accusing is not like conviction. When God convicts us of sin, there's something clean about it. It's a call to purity, to repentance, to a change of life, change of heart. That's, it's all healthy. When you're accused, there's a sense of shame. There's a sense of, I'm under this burden I can't get out of. Satan accuses us. Um, we saw that in Job 1 and 2 in a series we did not long ago. In Zechariah 3, uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, uh, a singularly uh, uh, graphic image of the high priest of Israel in his gown, standing before the angel of the Lord, and his gowns look filthy because he's not morally perfect. And it says Satan is there accusing him. That's what Satan does to you and I as well. And of course, in that scene, uh, God clothes uh, Joshua the high priest with clean robes, adequate for heaven's presence. And that's like you and I, we bring our, our righteousness is like filthy rags and Christ provides for us that perfect righteousness you and I can't get on our own. That's the thought there. But Satan's there accusing him. In Revelation 12.10, there's a future day, it hasn't happened yet, in which Satan is going to be uh, tossed from the realms of heaven in which he has access today. But it says, the accuser of our brothers will be thrown down who accuses them night and day before God. When you and I sin, we want to make sure we confess our sins and Scripture says God's holy and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. It also says there in 1 John 2 that we have an advocate with the Father. If Satan comes against us as a prosecuting attorney, we have a supreme defense attorney in the person of Jesus there advocating for us. So he's accusing. He's also stealing. In Matthew 4 and Luke 8, there's that uh, same parable of the sower and the seed. And if you remember in that parable, the sower is the Son of Man and the seed is the Word of God. And he throws the seed out indiscriminately. 
He's not trying to be a good farmer. He's just throwing it every place. And he says, Jesus says about the, the uh, seed that gets thrown on a rocky soil or path, he says the birds come up and they eat the seeds. They take the seed away. And Jesus says that is the work of the enemy taking away the truth of the Word of God. It says so that someone may not be saved. Someone may not be saved. Satan is stealing the truth of the Gospel before someone has the chance to believe it. He's doing that today. If you sit here today, and by the way, I assume most of us are believers or Christians that have this morning have passed out of judgment into life, but I'm sure in any group <laughs> there are certain things that are true. And I assume that some of us here this morning were in church, but we're not saved. And I'm not throwing any stones, by the way. But what we want to do is we want to make sure we do this. We don't put off for tomorrow what God gives us to do today. Hebrews says, today is the day of salvation. If today you hear His voice, harden not your heart. When you hear the Gospel, we want to take it and we want to believe it. We want to repent of our sins, our waywardness against God, just as Satan lives, and say, Lord, I'm Yours. Jesus, I get it. You died for my sins. I'm Yours. If you haven't done that, believe today. And then start living that faith out if you haven't done that. But guys, there's another thing for us. This world is so full of distractions that Satan effectively steals the Word of God from believers like you and me today by simply getting us busy with tons of other things. Social media, television, uh, hobbies, sports, you name it. Are we getting up daily and are we starting with God and His Word? Not, not to be religious. To store God's Word in our heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by God's Word. That's how we get God's faith and faithfulness built up in ourselves. Are we taking in God's Word? Or, as believers, is Satan stealing the Word in this sense by simply keeping us so busy with other things that we're not in the Word and it's not in us? So one of the things Satan is doing is he's stealing God's Word from unbelievers and from believers as well. He's also murdering, killing. John 8.44, of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. This is a relatively safe image. I was going to use some different images, but because of little kids, I chose not to. Uh, the, if, you've, if you've seen pictures of uh, death camps, if you've seen images online of beheadings, if you've seen... Uh, the results of abortion, death in all its gory glory, that's the spirit of Satan. That is the spirit of murder. That's the spirit of death that he sows. It's, this is a nice picture of death. So this was uh, for a G audience. But you could sure come up with a lot of others that bring more realistically to our minds what Satan has in fact been up to. He's a murderer. There's no kind thought in him. He wants your destruction. He wants my destruction. If He can't get us forever in hell, He'll try and destroy our lives here on the earth anyway. So He's murdering. 1 John 3.12 says this, Don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. The spirit in Cain's murderous attitude towards Abel, his brother, was the spirit of Satan. He's a murderer. So that's the epitome of the ultimate villain today. He's at work in the world. This is what he's doing. It's what he's been characterized by. And it's still what he's doing today. So, 
You know that old Bonnie Tyler song, We Need a Hero? This is where we would cue that music, if you're old enough to remember that. We need a hero. Yep, going through my mind, sorry. 1 John 3.8, the devil has been sinning from the beginning, but the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared on the earth was to destroy the works of the devil. This is from Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 says, uh, Jesus in His humanity, uh, through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those Deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil and he's destroying the one who has the power of death. I think I've, I may have mentioned this in the past. My dad lost his mom when he was a little guy. And somehow the impact that had on him, he had some hard uh, knocks when he was young, when his mother was alive, and then afterwards when she was gone. And when my dad was an old man older than me, uh, he told me he'd been afraid of death all his life. Afraid of death all his life. This is a guy who was a navigator on a bomber in World War II who was shot down over Germany, who was a POW for a year and a half. And he still said, after all that, he said, I'm afraid of dying. I'm afraid of death. I've been afraid of death all my life. And we went to Hebrews 2. And we talked about this. Jesus has come to the earth to save us from death and from the fear of death and from the sting of death. So we want to make sure we know when we're talking about Satan and what he's up to and his power, which his power and his craft are great and they are armed with cruel hate. Luther said, on earth is not his equal. We'll be singing that song in a minute, Lord willing. We don't want to lose sight that Jesus has in His death and resurrection conquered sin and Satan and death. So His craft, His power are great, but we're not ultimately subject to them. We've got a hero. Romans 8.37 says that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, through Christ. Which is interesting. In Romans 8, it says, it quotes an Old Testament psalm and says, we're like sheep for the slaughter. We Christians in Paul's day, right? The early church, martyrdom all over the place. We're like sheep to the slaughter. In the context of that, Paul says, and we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. How does that work? It, it works because no matter what happens to you in your life on this earth, if you're in Christ, you have His victory. He rose from the dead. He has an invincible life. He shares that with us. So no matter how bad your life on earth is, if you're in Christ, you are more than conquerors over everything this world or its God throws at you. More than conquerors through Him who loved us. You've got spiritual uh, armament adequate too for what's going on today. I want to close with what happens to Satan at the end. So God's drama has already been written. It's just being played out. I do believe that what you'll see is this in the near and perhaps a uh, little more distant future. Uh, Satan's power on the earth today is waxing, it's not waning, it's growing, it's not lessening. And Satan's influence on the world will appear so convincing that it will look like at a certain time coming up that he's won. But at the end of that time, what we call in Revelation the seven-year tribulation period or the last seven-year period 
of Daniel's revelation, this is what it says. Revelation 19, Jesus returns to the earth. Do you remember the glorious image of Jesus on the horse leading the armies of heaven with Him? He comes back to the Mount of Olives. He puts down all rebellion. Matthew 25, the sheep go into His millennial kingdom. He rules and reigns with them for a thousand years. Well, as He comes to the earth, this is what He says. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in His hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. This is just an angel. This is not even a named angel. This image is called Michael. Uh, they ascribe Michael the archangel to this. Scripture doesn't say that here. That angel seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into a pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So when King Jesus comes back to the earth, he simply says to an angel, hey, take the key, open the pit, grab the chain, chain him up, throw him down. Is there any problem here for Jesus dealing with Satan? Power is not an issue here. He throws him down. He doesn't deceive the nations. For a thousand years, this earth is going to experience the blessing, the, perf the perfect blessing of a perfect ruler in King Jesus ruling the earth from Jerusalem with his saints. That would be you and I. We'll be here with him. But you know what happens after a thousand years of perfect ruling by King Jesus? You know that the human heart is the same as it's ever been. And so this is what comes next. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. So many people still just open to the deceptions of the enemy. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, but fire, there's no battle here. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. Those are earlier in Revelation, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. At the end of all things, there's no thought that there's this battle and it's close, and, but Jesus somehow wins. It's not like that. Satan is cast into the lake of fire. We want to make sure, too, we don't entertain the popular notion in hell there will be no one who's more afflicted in God's righteous, wrathful judgment than Satan. He won't be there with a pitchfork poking other poor souls. There won't be no one who has greater punishment in hell than Satan. What you'll see in both heaven and hell is that God is absolutely just. Those believers who live the most righteous, devoted lives to Christ will get exalted rewards in heaven. And those people who choose to live lives of wickedness, great wickedness, will have great punishment also. Satan is not going to be persecuting others in hell. He will be the object of God's ultimate wrath and punishment in hell. So, if you're part of the worship team, come on up. We're going to pray together here in just a second. Um, Satan was the best in a sense, God could do to provide a villain for Jesus' superhero. There's no thought but that Satan exists on this earth in our day before and after for the glory of God as a means by which God through Christ would display His ultimate perfection and glory. We need to remember that. If you would stand with me and pray with me, Sorry, guy. Uh, can you get my last slide? It should have been a Jude 24 on there, and I'm not seeing it. It didn't show up? Oh, you're kidding. 
Last slide should be Jude 24. Is it there, Chad? If you don't see it in the... Okay. That's fine. So guys, I will read Jude 24 and you can say amen. Many of you will know it and this is a verse out of a well-known song. Thank you! Let's say this together. Let's pray this together. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.